Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Charlie Matessian, sitting in for Scott Bland. This week, we're talking Rexit. Rex Tillerson's departure from the State Department, which was a long time coming, and it still managed to take people by surprise. Plus, we'll talk about the oh-so-close race for a congressional seat in western Pennsylvania. Some Republicans are sounding the alarm about the prospect of losing the House majority after losing that one. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And one more note before we begin. We're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern time on Thursday, March 15th, so it's all up to date as of then. So, okay, let's get started by welcoming Nerdcast regular Emily Stevenson, an editor here at Politico. Hi. Hey, Emily. And we've got Holly Tusi, a foreign affairs correspondent for Politico. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. All right, on to our first data point. 75,000. That's how many people work for the State Department across the world. Although I guess it's probably 74,900 and in the 90s now that Rex Tillerson (laughs) and some of his top aides uh, got fired. Emily, let me start with you. Walk us through the firing, uh, which I might add came by a tweet. Well, the White House would take issue with saying that this was a firing by tweet. They say that Rex Tillerson had some warning that this was coming. The State Department, though, on Tuesday said that uh, Tillerson did not know he was going to be fired and didn't know why. Um, So some discrepancy about whether this was a firing by tweet or not. But if it was, this would not be the first time that the White House had fired someone by tweet. If you remember, um, Reince Priebus found out that he was being removed as White House Chief of Staff when Trump tweeted that he had decided to offer the job to John Kelly. Um, and not too dissimilar from what happened to James Comey, who was on the other side of the country and found out from television that he'd been fired. Um, in that case, the White House did try to let him know. They sent somebody to the FBI to alert him that he was being fired, but he wasn't there. Um, so Trump, it turns out, does not like to actually say you're fired in person. <laughs> I totally forgot about the Reince Priebus departure. Holly, you, you wrote uh, what I thought was a really interesting piece this week about what the workers at the State Department were feeling after uh, this news. And the headline was a, a very good one, a great sense of relief. Why relief? Well, Tillerson's management of the State Department has been criticized for months and months and months because uh, people feel like he is too isolated. He does not uh, take into account the expert opinions of the many diplomats who work for him. Many of them just feel sidelined. He's been trying to cut the budget, not to mention cutting the staff. And, you know, people just really feel like they have been treated badly under Tillerson. And so they were very, very eager to see him go because of management reasons. Now, policy is a different thing. In many ways, Tillerson is kind of an establishment Republican. And so 
the question now is whether his replacement, if he is confirmed, Mike Pompeo, the CIA director, uh, will take similar policy positions or more likely take much more hawkish ones. But here's the thing. I thought Tillerson was supposed to protect State Department from the vagaries of Donald Trump and the White House nationalists. I, I, I mean, wasn't that the conventional wisdom in, in the beginning of the administration, at least? Well, a lot of people thought, look, he's an former ExxonMobil CEO. He knows how to manage large, large organizations. And so when he came in, there was this hope that not only would he know how to run things normally, but also his goal of like restructuring and redesigning the State Department would be handled in a way that, that people would like and that people would appreciate. But what really, really made a lot of people unhappy was when President Trump proposed his first budget, and that included a 30% cut to the State Department budget. And Tillerson just went along with it. He didn't fight back. He didn't stand up to the president. He just basically said, yeah, we're going to try to impose it. And that was a huge signal to State Department staffers that, you know, he didn't necessarily have their back. Well, Holly, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but my understanding is people who work for the State Department and a lot of other places in the federal government are used to changing administrations. So they're used to people coming in who totally change policy or disagree with them on policy or something, and they can kind of deal with that. It was the idea that Tillerson wanted to concentrate decision making at the top and didn't want to involve people at the State Department didn't seem to trust people at the State Department to do their jobs that really frustrated people. Yes. Again, that's kind of part of the management issue versus the policy issue, that it was about feeling sidelined. You had, you know, people just who are experts, I mean, serious experts on regions of the world, et cetera, who were just not being consulted on major, major decisions. Not to mention Tillerson did not fill numerous leadership positions. You have so many vacant assistant secretary jobs, undersecretary jobs. And so people just felt like that you know, they were just completely ignored in this Republican administration. Uh, policy is a different issue. If you're a civil servant or a foreign uh, service officer in this department, you are supposed to carry out the policy of whatever administration is in charge. And people understand that. They're, they're kind of sworn to do that. Um, but, you know, the question is whether um, their advice under the new director uh, is going to be uh, heated or simply politicized to a degree where they feel uncomfortable. But that's, that's something we don't know yet. Well, Holly, let's talk about those vacancies and that brain drain that you talked about earlier that's been happening at the State Department. Put it into some context. How serious is it that so many people, senior people, have left? Well, I mean, over time, it just kind of adds up. You, what you have is people filling in to these positions, like assistant secretary jobs, uh, on an acting basis. Uh, or they are what's known as like a senior bureau official. But what, what happens is because Tillerson had centralized decision making in his office and was so slow to make so many decisions, people just often didn't know what to do. So when it came to like, you know, our relationships on a number of levels, whether it's just, you know, with a small country here and there or whether it was U.S. policy, say, on, on related to the environment, you know, when, when people, diplomats wanted to go to like a conference, say, about like, you know, the oceans or the atmosphere, they often will go and not know what to say because they had never been given any instructions, nor had their requests for instructions been answered by Tillerson's office. So you not only have people like filling it on an acting basis, but they don't even feel empowered. And what happens is that, sure, Tillerson might be handling things like North Korea and Iran. These are like big, big issues that you cannot ignore. But it's these other other relationships with smaller countries, et cetera, that kind of, you know, keep things strong in the long run. And, and if you let these ties fray, they build up 
And one day, for instance, when you need that small country's help, you know, on building an alliance or getting a vote through the UN Security Council or something, they might be like, you know what, you weren't there for us a few months ago. Why should we help you? So you got to think long term. And there was a sense that Tillerson was not. So you could be fired by tweet. Your mission is uncertain. You're afraid to speak publicly. And you feel like no one at the top, neither your boss or your ultimate boss, respects you. Sounds like uh, a nice place to work. Does not sound fun. (laughs) So, Emily, let me ask you. um, The president picked his CIA director, Mike Pompeo, to lead state. But, of course, he's got to get through his Senate confirmation first, right? That's right. So, you know, he was confirmed to lead the CIA and he's a former Republican congressman. Republicans control the Senate. Um, So you would think that he would have a relatively easy time. But um, Senator Rand Paul said yesterday that he planned to oppose Pompeo's confirmation. And Rand Paul is on the committee that will hear Pompeo's that will hold the uh, confirmation hearings. Um, He said he's upset with Pompeo's previous support for the war in Iraq and his position on um, extreme interrogation methods or torture, depending on how you define that. Um, And so that would mean if um, if Rand Paul does, you know, stick with this and decide to oppose Pompeo, uh, Republicans have a one seat advantage on that committee. They lose that if they lose Rand Paul. So they would need Democrats to vote for Mike Pompeo. And so far, Democrats are playing it close to the vest on what they're going to do. If you sort of scope out ahead, though, that means there's probably a couple of potential thorny, messy confirmation hearings coming up, right? If you Pompeo and there will be others, right? That's right, because um, the woman who was named to replace Pompeo at the CIA, Gina Haspel, um, has also drawn opposition from Rand Paul, who says um, she was involved in running one of the CIA black sites. And um, Paul has said, you know, he's not going to support her because of that. Um, he's It's a different committee that would hear her hold her confirmation hearing. So the issues are a little bit different. But we're definitely looking at some messy confirmation fights again, only a year into the administration. Um, there were a handful of Democrats who voted to confirm Mike Pompeo at CIA. And two of those Democrats are on the committee that will hear his confirmation. So it's possible that they can win some Democrats over and that he'll get confirmed to be Secretary of State. But basically, this is not going to be a cakewalk. Yeah. And one thing to remember about Pompeo is that, you know, when he was a Republican congressman from Kansas, he was one of the most partisan uh, people in Congress. I mean, in his rhetoric and his style. And so that's one thing that, you know, a lot of people are going to be remembering, including Democrats, when they're trying to decide what to do. Now, it is possible, my understanding is it's possible that even if he doesn't get the vote in the committee, that they can just take his nomination to the floor anyway. But even then, you have a very, very close you know, split between the Republicans and the Democrats in the full Senate. And I mean, it might come down to a situation where the vice president has to come in and, and break a tie. Which has happened before. And the other thing to remember about if this gets messy and drags out is, I mean, you know, this is important because... Um, the president wants to have a confirmed secretary of state and CIA director. That's important. But it's also important because Trump's reason for firing Tillerson now was that he said he wanted his team in place before they're supposed to do this sit down with North Korea, which they're saying could come in May. So if you're looking at confirmation hearings in April that could turn into a knockdown drag out fight, you know, the concern is that he doesn't actually have his team in place when they get to the point of these meetings. Okay, so Emily, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you a lightning round question about Tillerson. Does Tillerson 
write a tell-all book because after all, he left under not very pleasant circumstances and notably did not mention the president in his farewell press conference. He didn't thank the president. Um, I would read that book. (laughs) That's all I'll say. (laughs) Well, Holly, uh, one last question for you. Can you talk about what the people you've talked to at the State Department have to say about Pompeo? Are they hopeful uh, or are they just you know, just sort of uh, suffering PTSD uh, after the last uh, 18 months or whatever? I mean, what do they say about their uh, new PTSD, post-Tillerson stress disorder? Oh, I like that. That's better. (laughs) Um, You know, people are hopeful about Pompeo because he has the president's ear. He has a much better relationship than Tillerson did with Trump. So there's hope at the State Department that he will come in and Hopefully, he will listen to the diplomats there. He will take their advice. He will at least talk to them. Um, But also, he could talk to the president on their behalf and hopefully bring up the State Department's esteem in the president's eyes. So that that is, you know, in the in the overall scheme, what people are telling me is we're going to we're happy to give Pompeo a try because we are really tired of Tillerson. I'll now return to private life as a private citizen, as a proud American proud of the opportunity I've had to serve my country. God bless all of you. God bless the American people. God bless America. All right, let's leave it there. Uh, Holly Tusi, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. And Emily, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me again. So now on to data point number two, 627. 627 votes out of more than 200,000 that were cast. That's the lead Democrat Connor Lamb has over Republican Rick Saccone. Lamb has declared himself the winner, but the Republican Party is going to challenge the result. We're going to unpack the race with Politico campaign reporter Elena Schneider, who's just back from the Pennsylvania 18th District in the southwest section of the state. Hey, Elena. How's it going? Pretty good. So uh, how was Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh was great. Um, It was a classic Pittsburgh experience. Lots of snow. And uh, and didn't make it to Permonte Brothers, unfortunately, but maybe next time. Great. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed my uh, home state. Okay, so I mentioned at the top, we're taping this Thursday around noon. But bring us up to speed on the results of this election and the legal challenge that's apparently coming. So Tuesday night, we watched Connor Lamb build a pretty significant lead early on in the evening. And then Rick Saccone slowly chipped away at it. And the margin got slimmer and slimmer. And then finally around 1230 at night, it was coming down to absentee ballots in which counties were having to um, count into the wee hours of Wednesday morning. There's somewhere around six or 7,000 total absentee ballots scanning these counties that we're showing right now. Some we'll see, as you say, in the next 15 minutes or so. But many of these we expect will actually be tabulated, counted, and reported out tomorrow. So we we are unlikely to know the winner tonight. Washington. So Nancy, we saw the candidate introduced to the crowd there as congressman-elect, despite the fact that there is no official result yet. Right, and this is all about Democrats and the Lamb campaign 
trying to seize the narrative here, um, acknowledging that this is a razor-tight race, but insisting that they believe at the end of the day that there is no way Rick Saccone could catch up based on the locations of the absentee ballots. As those numbers get closer, I want to contribute a little bit to what Brett was talking about, what I'm hearing from officials and sources here on the ground. As far as things not being over this evening, potentially not being over even as we enter tomorrow morning and into the next potentially couple of days, I'm hearing on the, here on the ground that things may very well turn on absentee ballots, that there could potentially be thousands of absentee ballots still out. And as you noted, we are now at 627 votes that separate the two. Republicans very quickly on Wednesday morning said that they planned on seeking a recount. The state law does not require that that's immediately triggered. Somebody has to ask for it. They're planning on asking for it. And there are serious concerns on their side about whether or not there was confusion amongst voters because of the new lines, the new districts that have been drawn for the 2018 midterms or the November lines. Um, But this special election took place under the old lines uh, that were used in the previous uh, last eight years. So they're claiming that that was very confusing to people. They're also claiming there were voting machine issues. It's unclear. I'm not a lawyer. It's unclear whether or not these these attempts will be successful. At this point, Democrats are acting as if Connor Lamb is going to be the next congressman. Somehow you knew this was going to end up in litigation. But this is a district, as you know, that Donald Trump won by 20 points. So scale of one to 10, how terrifying is this for the Republican Party? I'd give it probably an eight. Um, at this point, obviously, it's still a special election, and everyone will, you know, repeat over and over again that it's it is hard to extrapolate uh, how the midterms are going to roll out based on a single midterm. But twenty points, but twenty. Come on. I, that's what I'm saying. Twenty points in a district um, that this is the backbone of Trump's uh, electorate that brought, put him in office. These are predominantly white voters. They're union voters. They're um, blue collar voters, and they're but the. The suburban uh, parts of Allegheny County came out really hardcore against Trump and for Connor Lamb. And that was part of the reason why he was able to win that. So suburban areas are once again something we're talking about as a place where Republicans are in serious, serious trouble. And in fact, in the uh, political conference meeting that Republicans held uh, the morning after the special election, Paul Ryan and Steve Stivers, the chairman of the NRCC, once again hit home. If you have any suburban voters in your district, you need to be running a really serious campaign right now because you could be in trouble. And I'll also note that there are 118 districts that are more that are more competitive than the one that Connor Lamb just won. So that means, you know, Democrats have claimed that their battlefield is 100 districts. It may now be 120 districts. So I was chatting with this super plugged in former Democratic state legislator from Western Pennsylvania, uh, whose judgment I really respect. He told me that he thought Connor Lamb was an exceptional candidate uh, in, in many different ways. So let's talk more about Connor Lamb. Why do so many people speak so highly of him? Give us a, you know, sort of a quick bio and tell us why he is kind of an atypical Democrat. So he's a 33-year-old uh, JAG Marine veteran who went on to be a federal prosecutor in, in the Pittsburgh area. And he's 33 He's really young. And as everyone, every Republican kept telling me, he's super handsome, unlike the uh, Rick Saccone, who's sort of 60 and a little uh, looks like he's 60. Um, Connor Lamb is just tall. He's got this great jawline. He's very well spoken. He's deliberate. So people just felt like he really was able to connect with people, partially because of his resume, him being a very credible person, but also because people just liked him. And on top of that, he was able very 
very smartly and almost flawlessly to negotiate his platform and his message for this district. He came out very clearly that he was for Second Amendment rights. A, you know, a gun appeared in his first TV ad. Uh, he talked about how he was uh, pro-life personally as a Catholic, but, you know, obviously still is basically pro-choice because he said he wouldn't, you know, cha- try and change Roe v. Wade or anything like that. Um, and he also supported Trump's tariffs. That was something else that came up at the very end of the race. So he was able to and, and also talked about often talked about how people in the district wanted him to work with Trump. So he was able to really negotiate a very, um, difficult, treacherous uh, path to victory here, where very few Democrats are going to be in a position to do. But Republicans have claimed afterwards now that he was this unicorn. There's not going to be any more like him. I don't think that's actually true. There are actually several Democrats with similar similar profiles who don't face serious primary challenges and could, in fact, walk into elections and act like Connor Lamb. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the gun issue because it's really important in Pennsylvania as a whole. Uh, it's such a uh, people don't often realize what a pro-gun state it is, and particularly in that region. I, I think, in, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I don't know if it was filmed in that district, but it would have been very close to that borderline there. The movie, The Deer Hunter. Did you, mm-hmm. did you ever see The Deer Hunter? I haven't seen Deer Hunter. Jeez, it's a classic. I need to add it to my list. It's a fantastic. I mean, it's got to be like a top ten best movie of all time. Uh, I bet you even it's got to be up high on the AFI list of best American movies ever. Either okay, way, okay, I'll watch it. Before the next Nerdcast, I'll come back with a report. Okay, I want a full review. Either way, uh, that's the kind of district we're talking about there. And I think some scenes were actually even filmed in, in that part of southwestern Pennsylvania. But there was one other thing other than guns that were, was a big deal, uh, I think, or at least in my estimation of, of that race, his position on Nancy Pelosi. Yep. Tell us about that. So Connor Lamb really, again, pretty flawlessly, managed to talk about Nancy Pelosi, get ahead of this. So we saw this throughout all of 2017 in every single special election. Nancy Pelosi is the blunt force instrument that Republicans use to bludgeon Democrats. They come out with ads saying things like, you know, John Ossoff, you know, pretends like he's a centrist, but in fact, he's a, you know, member of the liberal, you know, coastal elites. That and he's the guy who ran in the Georgia special election, yes. right? So they were able very effectively to deploy that against John Ossoff. And people have talked about how effective that messaging strategy was. I'm sure that Lamb watched that, you know, took notes from that. Uh, maybe he wasn't planning on running for Congress then, but certainly or wasn't because uh, Murphy hadn't resigned yet. But took notes from that and realized that you needed to get out in front of this. And so he did. So in early January, he announced that he was not going to support Nancy Pelosi. He wanted new leadership in Washington. That's sort of the code word now. And and came out very clearly on it. But he was hearing, you know, I, when I talked to him last weekend, he was said he was still hearing from voters that they were confused about his position because they were seeing tens of millions of dollars being spent on negative ads saying that he was still going to be a member of her liberal flock, as they like to say. And so Lamb decided to come out with a response ad in which Director Camry said, there are all these negative ads out there and they want you to believe that I support Nancy Pelosi. It's all a big lie. And then pivots to talking about how he supports their, you know, their issues and things that they care about. And that Pelosi's not the center of the story. It was a it was a incredibly uh, informative uh, playbook for every red state Democrat who is, or excuse me, red district Democrat who's running right now, because this is a way that you can neutralize that attack. So you spent the better part of a week in southwestern Pennsylvania. I'm sure racking up huge expense account, uh, I'll add. Uh, but in your time there, open up your notebook a little. Tell us some stuff. What was it like to be there? So the nation's eyes are on this part of Pennsylvania, a place that doesn't get a lot of national attention. What, was, what did it feel like to be in the district and what did you see? 
So, I, yeah, I mean, I, I bopped around to all kinds of different events. I also just spent time in restaurants and, and, you know, was able to talk to people sitting in my hotel lobby about, you know, the experience of being at the center of so much spending, seeing so many television ads. I think a lot of people were pretty sick of it. Um, this is what happened. I mean, I remember this in Georgia, too, that people just sort of get tired and weary with all of this negativity. So I heard from a lot of people that they were really ready for Tuesday to come just so simply they could stop watching these TV ads. But it was striking to be in these, you know, take take last Sunday. I was in uh, Greene County, which is the smallest part of the district um, or the smallest you know, percentage of the district. This is a coal mining part of the part of the country. Coal mining, still workers, very um, blue collar sorts of people live there, very rural. And I was there for uh, to cover a rally that Liam put on with the uh, United Mine Workers Union. And this place was packed. It was full of people from the district. Everyone I talked to lived in Greene County or lived right, you know, lived in the neighboring county. And they were all there because they felt like they were concerned about Saccone's support for right to work, which is certainly something that came up a lot in why unions decided to support uh, Connor Lamb, but also were concerned about their pensions. So I think that people are very, you know, People are excited, were excited about Trump and what, you know, sort of economic boost he would give, the focus he was going to pay to coal miners and to working working people. And they haven't necessarily seen that pan out. And in fact, they're even more concerned about their pensions being taken away. And I think that Lamb was able to seize on that in a way of not alienating if they still felt like maybe Trump was the better person because they all remembered when Hillary Clinton said she wanted to put all the coal miners out of work, but was able to still say, look, even if you support Trump, you can still support me as a Democrat because I'm going to do something for you, unlike Rick Saccone. So let me play devil's advocate here. You know, Democrats are certainly celebrating uh, this victory, and, and they should. This this is a really big deal as House districts go. Um, but you could also argue that, you know, in many ways, this race and Connor Lamb it was lightning in a bottle. Here you've got an exceptionally good candidate who raised tons of cash, who um, had a family name. His, you know, his family was in politics in Allegheny County, which was the Democratic part of the district. Um, and for all those reasons, uh, he also didn't have a voting record. He'd never run for office, so he right. didn't have a voting record to be picked apart. So for all those reasons, uh, this was kind of a special race and that Democrats elsewhere will not have those kinds of uh, wins at their back. I I agree with you for the most part. Like thinking ahead to California was one place where like nobody's going to get out of a primary there without getting beaten up. But there are a handful of districts that are red districts where Democrats are running without serious challengers. Take Dan McCready, who wants to challenge Robert Pittenger in North Carolina, just outside of Charlotte. He's a He's an Iraq War veteran. He's a solar executive, a businessman, never run for office before. And he's somebody who could use the Connor Lamb playbook. Chrissy Houlihan, who's also running in Pennsylvania, another veteran um, who could use it as well. Mickey Sherrill in New Jersey. Uh, Brendan Kelly out in Illinois. All the people I just named basically don't have serious primary challenges. So they have a little more leeway to um, to to make a more centrist, moderate play. And I kept hearing from people. I mean, take I met a state representative when I was out in Greene County who, um, Patty, uh, Pam Snyder, who was elected in 2016 in, the, in an area where Trump won by more than 70 percent of the vote. And she's a Democrat. And she positioned herself as a moderate. And she said, we need to be more like Connor and more like myself in the way that we're running here because we can win these areas. We just need to not get lost in this sort of national democratic uh, party. And if you so show some separation there, that can really still be attractive to voters. 
And so the part of Pennsylvania that you were in uh, was clearly Trump country. That you right. know, Western Pennsylvania is Trump country, you know, with the exception of Pittsburgh proper. Did you see anything that uh, you know maybe y- you thought gave you some insight into uh, how the state might perform in 2020? It's a great question. Uh, I think people still really do like Trump. And I think even the people that I was talking to, um, there was one woman who I caught as she was heading to the polls talked about how she was supportive of Trump and she liked Trump and she liked what Trump was doing, but she also felt like there needed to be a little bit of balance. So I don't know if this necessarily means that uh, Trump is suddenly going to lose Pennsylvania, which was a place that he was able to win and part of what delivered him the White House. But I do think that there are some serious cracks and warnings signs, that people have concerns about his focus uh, and whether or not he's going to deliver on some of these promises uh, to these to these working families who feel like, you know, he was supposed to be their champion and they're still giving him some leeway, but they're not quite sure if he's actually going to deliver for them. So they're certainly warning signs for 2020. Well, Lena, uh, this was great this week. Thank you so much. I know you had a really grueling week. Thank you so much for coming. Of course. Happy to be here. And one P.S. Our crack executive producer informs me that the deer hunter was ranked number 79 on the AFI list of top 100 American movies, which I think is way too low. Well, I will say I watched This Is Us, and that also takes place in the Pittsburgh suburbs. So, you know, I've made it into some cultural experiences that overlap with southwestern Pennsylvania. Not even comparable. You know what else is southwestern Pennsylvania? All the right moves. Same thing. Probably that congressional district, Tom Cruise movie. I would bet that more people listening watch This Is Us than Deer Hunter. What about All the Right Moves? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for coming anyway. Thanks for having me. Our show is produced by Bridget Mulcahy and Micaela Rodriguez, with help this week from Adrienne Hurst. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our researcher is Zach Montalaro. And our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And yes, we really read them. Thanks. We'll see you next week.